0: Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you all, friends old and new. You are all very welcome. It's uh, it's always a privilege to be here and to do this. Always um, a great honour and one that we, um, I think, everybody that does it enters into it with fear and trembling. Um, so. We're on our way to the cross. We are this is our build-up to Easter, and we've started in two Corinthians, and I'm just going to continue from where we left off last week. So we're in 2 Corinthians five. and verses 16 and 17. Two Corinthians 5: 16 to 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Father, we ask that you open our ears and soften our hearts to receive from you this morning. We bless you, Lord, for what you've already been saying to us. Please help me, please guide my speech, Lord, because we want what we hear today to be from you, not from man, not man's wisdom, but yours. Amen. Right. So, a little bit different. As if there hadn't been enough music already this morning. I'm going to teach you a little song. And you'll see why. So this song will help you to learn today's passage. It's called If Any Man Is In Christ, and it's by David and Ruth Haddon. And it goes like this.
1: have passed away. Everything is made new. If any man in Christ, he is a new creation. Has sin got a hold of me? No, I am a new creation. Has God's truth set me free? Things have passed away, everything's made new. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Has fear got a hold of me? No, I am a new creation. God's good is love in me, I am a new creation. The old has gone, the new. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So now
0: you know the scripture, right? you did very well. So um, today's passage is quite short, but it's weighty, and these, these two verses contain one of Paul's most famous statements about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what we mean by regenerate? Make new, renew, improve, Make better, reinvigorate, fill with life again, make clean, add strength again. Move from sinfulness to holiness. Now, a quick check of a dictionary or thesaurus gives you a lot of insight into this word, but the dictionaries and the thesauruses, or is it thesauri, they're they're missing one particularly helpful word, upcycle. Upcycling. Have you heard of it? It's very trendy. You take something old, a bit worn out, that's showing signs of wear. Why am I pointing at myself? And and rather than throwing it away, you refurbish it, maybe repaint it. You give it a new lease of life. One of my colleagues did this with a dining table recently. He had this dining table that was starting to look a bit worse for wear. He and his wife have two young boys, enough said. That table had been through the mill. But the wood was all okay. It looked a bit rubbish, but the basic framework was sound. And his wife was talking about buying another table, but my colleague really doesn't like to throw things away. So instead, he bought himself some chalk paint, and he joined the growing ranks of upcyclers. And he painted the frames of the table, and the dining chairs in one color, and he painted the tabletop and the seats in another. And the end result is, uh, I've seen the photos, a table that Ikea would have been proud to break down into fiendish little flatback flat puzzle and <laughs> slap on some bizarre Swedish name like Riktig Ugla or Grunkula and uh, sell to the adoring middle classes. So you might say that the table and the chairs were regenerated, ready for another ten years or so of wood-splintering encounters with boisterous boys. The metaphor of upcycling isn't perfect for regeneration. You know, I say that when the Holy Spirit works in us to take us from the kingdom of darkness, of slavery, to sin, and to put us into the kingdom of Christ, of slavery to God's good purposes, I say that the Holy Spirit's work is much more wide-reaching much deeper than simply a quicksand and a lick of paint. But still, the metaphor's helpful, right? This, this upcycled table, table, you can tell where it's come from. You can tell it's the same table, but it looks dramatically improved. And then instead of being cast out as refuge, it becomes useful and worthwhile. And it's, it's valued not because just because of its intrinsic value as a piece of furniture is valued also because there's inherent worth in that creative process of upcycling. It's like like an investment of time and art. And it's it's been made into more than it ever was before. It becomes special in a way that it wasn't previously. And any parent who's stuck a child's drawing (laughs) to a fridge door knows that sometimes it's not simply about the quality of the art. It's about whose is the artwork. And when Christ comes into our hearts, when he begins his powerful work in our lives, people can look at us, they can see that we're the same person, and yet there's something very different about us. We've taken on new value, and it's, it's not merely the value that we have as creatures made by God, but also value from the work Christ has done to restore us, to make us righteous and holy, something we could never do on our own any more than a table could paint itself with chalk paint. So whether you want to call it regeneration or human upcycling, this is about dramatic change, dramatic improvement for the better. We really are new creations. More about that later. So in verse 16, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And If you're listening closely, you'll hear that word therefore, and you go bing, I know what that's about. Therefore, it's a clue that Paul is referring back to what he's just said. So let's just quickly recap. Re, re, <laughs> don't know what that means. <laughs> let's quickly recap some of last week's passage because that gives us context for today. And we don't have to look back too far. So verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for all. And there's a lot packed into that word for. A helpful analogy might be a footballer, a striker scoring a goal. And when he or she scores that goal, The footballer does it for the team. It's not just the footballer that's won. It's not just the footballer that scored the goal. It's the team that's won. And even though it was the striker's foot, not anyone else's, that scores this goal, it's not just a win for him or her. It's a win for everyone in the team. And in the same way, when Christ died for us, that death isn't just his, but it's everyone's. We all share in that death. And this is really important because the, uh, the death of Christ was, it wasn't just about one person dying. It had massive spiritual and symbolic significance because Jesus' death was also a sacrifice. Sacrifice is a bit of an odd word, isn't it, for us to use these days. But at one time, it was just an essential part of any believer's life. You couldn't be clean before God without sacrifice. We're quite far removed from those times when this was true. But to understand what Jesus' sacrifice means, we have to start by accepting as a fact, as one of the principles on which God founded the universe, the fact that any sin must be paid for. God is an absolutely holy And righteous being. He cannot tolerate sin. And like it or not, the only way to deal with sin is through death. This is as much a fact as gravity. If you drop a rock, it's going to be pulled down to the earth by the effect of gravity. It must be pulled down. If you commit a sin, there must be payment. Payment in blood. Does this sound like a bit of a repellent idea? You know, really, ultimately, it doesn't matter what we think of this. Just like it doesn't matter whether or not we believe in gravity, we're still bound by its effects. And the same is true of the principles of sin and atonement. If you sin, there must be an atonement, payment for that sin. Without atonement, you can't be forgiven. It is literally impossible. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You won't understand the Old Testament until you accept this principle. Now, God is a just God, isn't he? So that's why sin demands restitution, but he's also merciful. Sin Demanded a blood sacrifice, but in his mercy, he created a loophole. His law, his loophole. And we see this loophole in action pretty early on in history, in fact, in Genesis 3. So this is where we see Adam and Eve first sin. And in this chapter in Genesis... The couple, they've disobeyed God. God pronounces judgment on them and punishment. And then at verse 21, you see something that's mentioned so briefly, you could be forgiven for missing it entirely. Genesis 3:21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So these garments of skin, they're animal, animal skin. So there's been shedding of blood. And the man and the women are now covered by the sacrifice that God's made on their behalf, some animal or other. And that animal has died in their place. So, you know, God's loophole allowed an animal to be substituted in place of the sinner. Adam and Eve should have died there and then. The animal's blood was shed on behalf of the person who sinned. And this is the mercy of God, that he allows the sin of the human, a being whose. A mortal soul could be permanently tainted by sin. He allows the consequences of that sin to be transferred to an animal, to a creature not made in the image of God. Okay, so we have a lot of talk of animal rights these days, and we might be inclined to think this is a bit unfair. Unfair on the poor animal. What did the animal do? But we need to remember this is God's universe, these are God's animals. And he has every right to be merciful in this way if he so chooses. And so the universal principle that sins must be paid for with blood, that principle is satisfied in the sacrifice of an animal. However we feel about this, this is the truth. This is the truth of sin and sacrifice. And this is why Jesus' sacrifice was absolutely essential. And this is why it had to be violent and bloody... But, of course, Jesus wasn't like an animal. He wasn't a literal sheep or a dove being sacrificed. It was through him that the universe was created, after all. So for him to be sacrificed, Jesus, the only begotten son of Father God, you can see how that might usher in a completely new era, where Christ's sacrifice in the past pays for all sin, past present, and future. Christ died for all. That's what Paul says. Absolutely everyone, everyone, during life, has a right to claim the benefit of Jesus' sacrifice. And there are no exceptions, which is another thing we may have difficulty understanding and accepting, because we tend to think in terms of bigger and smaller sins, don't we? But no, all sin is sin. And Jesus' sacrifice was of such a magnitude that it covers over the most heinous, evil, vile sin mankind can imagine, including the sin of brutalizing an innocent man and leaving him to die on a cross in just about the cruelest way imaginable. So in verse 15, we saw the whole purpose here, that those who live, that is, everyone who repents and accepts Christ... No longer live for themselves. Instead, they live for Christ. We live for Christ. If we score a spiritual goal, it's Christ's team that wins. And this is why Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look on people in the old, sinful, fleshly way. That old, unrighteous way of living, we're done with that. Worldly principles, principles of success, fame, wealth, beauty, these become irrelevant. Irrelevant why? Irrelevant because we've seen the light. We've seen the future. We know that the entire course of human history is all about the advance of the kingdom of God. It's all about working towards his rule and reign in every heart. It's about an eternity spent in the purest delight, in the most satisfying experience possible for humans. This is an eternity devoted to worshipping, serving, and loving our creator. You think that vision of the future doesn't sound much fun? Then your vision is too small. So, practically, how do we stop regarding people according to the flesh? There are many ways, so let's just consider an example or two, and hopefully this will be enough to demonstrate the principle. Success. We want to have success in life. Success in exams. Success in dating. Success in our favorite sport. Success in our work. Success in our church ministry. And... Success seems really important when things like salary, like the ability to put food on the table, that depends on success. And you know, it is right that we work because that's part of the created order. Adam and Eve worked right at the start, before the fall. So a certain measure of success is desirable, but success at the expense of what? Now, many of us will imagine what our lives might be like if we get this qualification, that job, this break, how this might lead to other things, more opportunities, and we might even wrap this up in moral-sounding arguments like the more money I have, the more money I can give to the poor, the homeless, to charities. What does God think about plans like these? Proverbs 16.3, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do you work heartily? Mm-hmm. Jeremiah 29, a For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. James four thirteen to 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And Matthew six thirty four. this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And what's the message here? Our plans, they're nothing compared to God's plans. I'm not saying it's wrong to plan, but I'm saying it's wrong, it's sinful, it's evil to put our plans ahead of what God's planned for us. So we should measure success in terms of whether or not we're obedient servants to the will of God. Not on the basis of how nice a house we live in, how many Valentine's cards we receive, or how well we do in our A-levels. True, godly success isn't any of those things. We no longer regard people according to the flesh. How about health? Yeah, we probably think it's a good thing to be in great health, to be complete, undamaged, not disabled. It could be easy to look at people like our son Morgan, who's crippled with severe spastic cerebral palsy, and say, where's God in that? We nearly didn't make it to church this morning because of how ill Morgan was a couple of hours ago. Where's God in that? Let me read to you the words of a fairly well-known hymn. All the way my Saviour leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, hereby faith in Him to dwell. For I know whate'er before me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Saviour leads me, Cheers each winding path I tread. Gives me grace for every trial. Feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. Gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. All the way my Saviour leads me. Oh, the fullness of His love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit, clothed immortal, wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. These words were written by Fanny Crosby in 1875, and she was blind. She was blind and she wrote, All the way, my Savior leads me. Doesn't that give the hymn new meaning? Now, one time a preacher said to her, I think it's a great pity that the Master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Her response was, Do you know that if at birth I had been been able to make one petition, it would have been that I should be born blind? Why? asked the preacher. And she replied, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Saviour. We do not regard people according to the flesh. Talking about her blindness, she wrote this, blindness cannot keep the sunlight of hope from the trusting soul. One of the easiest resolves that I formed in my young and joyous heart was to leave all care to yesterday, and to believe that the morning would bring forth its own peculiar joy. On the face of it, you may think that illness or disability is a problem, something to pray hard against. And don't get me wrong, we do pray for health, we do pray for Morgan to be restored, but we also have complete faith in God. Do you remember what Joseph said after his brothers sold him into slavery? And he was raised up as the person through whom God would save two nations. Joseph said, you intended it for ill, but God intended it for good. We don't regard people, we don't regard situations according to the flesh. Trust God. At the end of verse 16, Paul says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh... We regard him thus no longer. And you know that during his time on earth, it would have been quite possible for Jesus' disciples, they probably did, to think of him as a man. A man gifted by God with the ability to perform miracles. And of course, he was a man. But that wasn't all he was. Jesus was also the sacrifice. The sacrifice that died and rose again, that came back from death, categorically proving his supremacy over death, taking away the fear of death at the same time as taking away the power of sin. If we just regarded Christ Jesus according to the flesh, we might think of him as a good teacher, an example, a role model, a guy who said a few good things that help us in life. And this is exactly how many people do view Jesus. He said some good things, like the golden rule. Treat others the way you wish to be treated. But if that's all you see, that's purely a fleshly view. He was man, but he was also God. And that's why he and no one else could beat that law of the universe, that rule that all sin requires a blood sacrifice. We regard Christ... According to the Spirit, knowing that He was so much more than a man. He was the person through whom everything was created. And because of Him, we have life. As the old song says, because He lives, we can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because we know He holds the future and life is worth the living just because He lives. Verse 17, back to the song I sang at the start. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, Paul had a special insight into what it meant to be a new creation. We can read some of his story in Acts 9. I like the way this chapter starts. Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, that was what Paul was called before God gave him a new name, and Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing threats and murder. (laughs) You can almost hear him muttering under his breath, can't you? I'll get them that unholy lot. They think their Jesus is so special, I'll teach them to ignore the Sabbath. So Saul, Paul, he's off on his way to the city of Damascus, and his plan is to root out the followers of Jesus who are polluting the synagogues, and he's going to sort them out good and proper. Uh, So presumably, on his way, still calling down divine fire upon these heretics, Paul is traveling along the road when, bang, he's knocked to the ground, blinded by a light from heaven. And Jesus, who, remember, by this time has gone back to heaven, Jesus speaks directly to him. It's a wonderful story. You can read it all later. The point is that Paul is blinded by this encounter, and he stays blind for three days. I don't want to read too much into the text, but I think it's fair to say that this physical blindness directly represented his spiritual blindness. It revealed him for what he was, an arrogant man who was defying God and rejecting the truth about Jesus. And Paul's then met by Ananias who sent by God to meet him. And presumably, poor Ananias, heart in mouth, because he knows Paul's violent reputation. He comes to see Paul, and then he lays hands on him. And Paul's sight comes back. And then you can see in verse 18 of Acts 9 that Paul is immediately baptized. And this baptism represents dying to the old life and rising in the new. So this man, Paul, with his vision brought back What's more than physical vision. He's now seeing things that he didn't see before. He's seeing the truth about who Jesus is. The truth about how much Paul was sinning and offending God when he persecuted the Christians. And Paul is now a new creation. His eyes are regenerated, and his heart is regenerated. Our conversion experiences aren't always quite that dramatic, <laughs> But however they take place, one thing is true of us all. We become new creations at the point we repent from sin and accept Jesus' way. And this being a new creation, it's for now. It's not something that's postponed until we get to heaven. Christians, you're new creations. Do you believe it? Not very convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that you've been regenerated? That you've been upcycled? Back to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Do you remember the next bit from the song? The old has gone, the new has come. What does it mean, the old has passed away? Now check this out. Isaiah 43. It's in here somewhere. Isaiah 43, I tell you what, if you ever feel in need of comfort, if you ever feel overwhelmed, this is a cracking chapter to read. Isaiah 43, 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the fires, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Isn't that wonderful? You know, during those difficult medieval times, when so-called heretics were burned at the stake, people who dared to say that the Bible was more important than human dogma, while the flames were starting on their evil way. Do you suppose some of these wonderful saints might have called this passage to mind? When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And what does that mean? That the, law, the laws of physics were suspended? No, it means what we already know from what the Bible says, from what we study today... The law of sin and death is suspended. And truly, that fire doesn't really harm them. They woke up in paradise. Maybe that sounds horrendous from our perspective, but those martyrs, they went to the stake saying, this is worth it. This is truth. I will not turn from it. Jesus himself said, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We have nothing to fear from the waters, from the fire. Our future is secure in Christ. We're staying in Isaiah 43. Look down at verses 18 to 21. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So the new things that are spoken of in Scripture so often, they've already started. Back in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when Paul says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, what's he talking about? For a, th- for a start, I think he must have been talking about his own new vision. Now, this process of becoming a new creation, this is for now, right now. now. While I was preparing this sermon, Sharon asked me, if being a new creation means that the old nature, the sin nature, has died, Why do we still sin? Wouldn't it be nice if that was all it took? Repent, turn to Christ, be completely transformed, and that's it. Perfect behavior from then on. And if you're asking yourself the same question, let, let me refer you to Romans 6. So Keith preached on this chapter in our Romans series on the 5th of November last year. You can find it on the podcast, on the website, or SoundCloud if you search for the title Dying to Live. And for now, I'm just going to focus on one short extract: Romans six, twelve to fourteen. Romans six, twelve to fourteen. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin, uh, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Four. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So sin no longer has dominion. That means, that means that sin is no longer your boss. While you were unsaved, you were ruled by sin. And you aren't now, but you'll still be tempted. So you have to exercise your will and choose not to sin and ask for the Holy Spirit to help you. Now, Jesus himself accepted that temptation would be a problem for us. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, he included the phrase, didn't he? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we can still sin, even though we're new creations. We're in the middle of the process of transformation, headed towards the kingdom of God when Jesus returns, when we'll be like him, when we'll see him face to face. You take an overview of the whole of Scripture, you can see this overriding story arc. I've said it already, the entire course of human history is all about the advance of the kingdom of God. God is working through time, through creation, to repair the damage done by sin and to bring in a new era where he rules and reigns in every life, in every heart, that will accept him that's the new which has already come so if you've accepted jesus this amazing journey's already begun for you it's a journey that includes inexplicable peace when you least expect it joy when everything around you suggests you should be mourning hope when all hope seems lost if you haven't accepted jesus yet doesn't this sound like the kind of thing you want that you need don't misunderstand me. Being a Christian isn't all about what God can do for you. It's also about what you can do for him. And remember, as Nathan explained last week, the cross is first and foremost about Christ, about Jesus being glorified as the victor, the champion. And after that, it's about our redemption, about how we benefit from his sacrifice how we can be saved right now in this life. So um, no Christian here will tell you that life becomes a bed of roses the moment you accept Jesus. But it certainly changes your outlook on life. It brings perspective. You realize that you can stop trying to be good. It wasn't ever going to work anyway. No one can ever be good enough Instead, you can accept him. Admit that his way is the best way. If that sounds like something you'd like to do today, speak to somebody about it. I implore you. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know any Christians personally, find a church. Just go. Ask God to speak to you there. He will. Lord God, we thank you for your word. That sacrifice that bringing us into a new life, that making us a new creation, taking us away from condemnation for past deeds. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We worship you. We honor you. Please let this word take root in our hearts, in good soil, and to grow. For your name, for your glory, for the sake of Jesus. Amen.